The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Amplifier Advisors, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jonathan Aberman. And welcome to What's Working in Washington Extra. We're going to discuss a very important issue that is relevant to every business owner, every employee, and every entrepreneur, which is health care. There's a lot of discussion about a health care system. There's a lot of political discussion. There's also a lot of policy discussion. Well, today we're going to talk about what some of those, those, some of those things mean so that you can make intelligent decisions for your business and also as a citizen. Here in the studio, I have Judy Fetter. She is currently a professor at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy. She was a former dean there, and she served on Capitol Hill in the Clinton administration working on health care reform. Judy, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. And also in the studio is Karen Pollitz. She is senior fellow at the Kaiser Family Foundation. She served on the Hill in the Clinton and Obama administrations implementing health care reform in the latter. Great to have you. Nice to be here. Well, let's get right into it. Why is health insurance so complicated and so darn hard to fix? Well, the American story, like every country's story, is a function of choices made in it early in its history that just stick. And when European and, and British country were making decisions to have government national health insurance, we didn't. We barely, in the early part of the 20th century, we barely had a federal government, no federal income taxes, not a big push. There was some interest, but it was squashed before World War I and even squashed in the Roosevelt administration and health care did not become uh, a part of the New Deal. In that period, however, especially in the Great Depression, people needed health insurance and providers, doctors and hospitals needed to get paid. Mm -hmm. And what emerged was a private health insurance system based on selling insurance to employers, to large groups. And that system grew and came to cover most Americans, most working age Americans have employer-sponsored health insurance. Now, it's important for everybody listening to know that there's a lot of public policy in that system. The, uh, the system grew in part because it was supported by a powerful tax break. Mm -hmm. The premiums that our employers pay are not treated as taxable income to employees, which is a very substantial tax, tax break, skewed toward the better off, but going a benefit to many middle-income middle Americans. Mm. And with that support, which now, by the way, might surprise people, now amounts to about $300 billion a year. So huge, about half the cost of Medicare or um, early, that's a good way to put it, half the cost of Medicare. Um, it's, it's huge. And what it does is entrench, it entrench that system. And when advocates for a public system try to expand government insurance after the New Deal, they found that the most politically expedient approach was to build around that system, to say, well, okay, workers have that system, have employer-sponsored insurance, it's growing, let's build something around it. We built Medicare and Medicaid hugely beneficial, but left a significant number of, of people before the Affordable Care Act, about 15% of Americans, closing, moving on to uh, 50 million people without health insurance coverage. That population is excluded, but 85% of us had health insurance. 15% didn't. And it's very easy to scare the 85% into believing they'll be worse off 
if we expand coverage than if we don't. So if I want to understand healthcare definitionally, it sounds to me that first of all, I need to make sure that I appreciate that a, a tax subsidy is still government spending. And Absolutely. that if we're comparing apples to apples, 300 billion is 300 billion, whether it's tax revenue deferred or, or forgiven or it's, it's money spent. So that's important. The second thing I hear you say is that unlike other capitalist countries, like the United Kingdom, for example, uh, like Holland, like Japan, but many other places, the way that we decided to have ourselves regulate or manage healthcare was to let the private sector do it under the umbrella of federal regulation. It was a distinct policy and decision. And not much federal regulation, very little federal regulation in that system, and no ability to control healthcare costs. Okay, so we have this private system that grew up. Johnson, uh, in his great society, said it's unacceptable that we don't take care of people who don't have jobs anymore or fail to have jobs. So we have this overlay. Uh, Karen, from, from your perspective, looking at, at, at this, the Kaiser Family Foundation, so forth, how do policymakers deal with this? I mean, how, how is this really what's going on right now? We have these entrenched interest and it's just it's hard to change the conversation there's definitely that mm -hmm. uh, so we have a huge big healthcare system three and a half trillion dollars a year that we spend on health care and that's all somebody's income so that's a lot of entrenched interests right there we do have a large system of private coverage as judy explained although <laughs> uh, even though most of us have private coverage um it's not like that's one big plan all right mm -hmm. there uh, more than half of us get coverage through work, but there are actually millions of employer-based plans. Um, and insurance companies, we expect the insurance companies in private coverage to do a couple of things. You know, one is to pay the claims. Two is to provide a network of doctors and hospitals where we can go, where they have negotiated a discount or a deal off the undiscounted charges. And that turns out not to be working very well. Mm. Um, and we don't have any really requirements about that. So we just sort of let the market work. We assume the market will work. But in fact, it hasn't worked well at all um, in private insurance. The market dynamics, the ability, because sometimes hospitals are consolidating in areas and so they just have a whole lot more market power than any given health plan or insurance company now in many areas, physician practices are consolidating and there's the same kind of, you know, kind of distortion in the marketplace. And so the marketplace can't get to a very good discount um, and certainly can't get to any consistent prices. So, so the cost of healthcare keeps going up and we see employers continuing to provide coverage. Now we require the large employers to do that, but also, the market kind of requires them to do and that to get a yeah to get a good job. You you people are looking for for good benefits, but this gets more and more and more expensive every year. And insurers are not helping employers by holding down the cost of healthcare. So what we see employers doing instead is kind of shift the cost onto the employees, raise the deductibles. The average deductible in an employer plan has risen eight times the rate of wage growth right. um, over the past over the past decade and and patients are starting to say ouch they can't afford it when they go to the doctor and whatever the bill is hits this big deductible and they they can't afford to pay well, it. it's another way to ration health care you know for those that say well we're rationing you know the government's going to ration health care effectively the private sector rations it by saying you know, every time you go to the doctor it's going to cost you a large and larger percentage of money you've touched on something that really is important uh, and i want to talk about after the break which is we have this private system it's tied to employment, but more and more jobs are gig economy, gig economy jobs mm -hmm. or don't 
provide those benefits. And, and that, I think, is where the hole in the market really gets kind of important. And I suspect that's what we're going to turn our conversation to when we talk about the Affordable Care Act and how that relates. And we'll be right back. Thank you to our sponsor, the Greater Washington Board of Trade. The Greater Washington Board of Trade represents leading businesses, nonprofit organizations, and academic institutions, and has helped shape the development of our region for over 130 years. Visit boardoftrade.org to learn about how a Board of Trade membership can help your organization succeed in this rapidly changing marketplace. Welcome back to this What's Working in Washington Extra. I'm here in the studio with Jody Feder, professor at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy, and Karen Pollitt, senior fellow at the Kaiser Family Foundation. I teased before the break, and now we're going to go right into it. Karen, the Affordable Care Act, how does that fit into this private-led model that prevails in the United States? The Affordable Care Act did uh, tried to fill in the gaps. You can think of uh, our eligibility for health insurance almost as a game of musical chairs. And when the music stops, if you're not working for an employer that provides good health benefits um, or in the family of someone who is in that situation, or if you don't qualify for one of the public programs, Medicaid for low-income Medicare, um, then you have to buy health insurance on your own. And that rarely worked for people before the Affordable Care Act. The The individual insurance market, number one, was unsubsidized. People had to pay the whole thing. Uh, number two was unregulated. Number three, it was mostly medically underwritten. So to apply for coverage, you had to answer a lot of questions about your health status, your health history, and you could be uninsurable and denied coverage because of a pre-existing condition. So the Affordable Care Act changed that. First, it took the Medicaid program, which was actually a safety net program only for some low-income people, and it said this is for all low-income people, including adults, um, up to 138% of poverty. The Supreme Court came along a few years later and said, well, that's a state option. And then in this little non-group market, um, the Affordable Care Act said, okay, total do-over. Now this is a market that has to offer uh, major medical coverage, the same as what employers do. It has to cover things like prescription drugs and mental health and maternity care and hospitalization. It can never turn you down or charge you more because you're sick uh, or because you're a woman or any right. of these other factors. And um, it's now going to be subsidized. So if you don't qualify for an affordable job-based plan at work and you don't qualify for Medicaid or Medicare, then you can come to the marketplace and you can get your premiums reduced by tax credits based on your income, at least up to an income of about 50000 a year for a single person, uh, four times the poverty level. Well, I'll say... Just speaking from the standpoint of an entrepreneur and owning my own businesses and growing businesses, getting health care coverage if you're an entrepreneur is just about it was just about impossible before right. the Affordable Care Act. So although there's a tendency to focus on access to health care for people that can't afford it, I think it's really important to get out the point that there are a lot of people that could afford insurance but still couldn't get it at any reasonable price because they, you know, they they weren't in a profession that had an, an employer. And most businesses that create jobs are small businesses that are started by entrepreneurs. What do they do for healthcare? And so, 
Which leads me to my next point, which is it strikes me that right now this whole conversation about where we're in healthcare, because we're going to start talking about alternatives, is around, oh, it's a binary choice. It's either, you know, either free market capitalist or you're socialist, right? You hear that a lot. So here's a, here's a lightning round question, Judy. Um, which of these capitalist countries doesn't have state uh, government involved uh, healthcare? Japan, UK, France? Canada, any of them? They've all got it. Is there, anybody, is, there, is there any country in the world that that has an advanced capitalist economy does not have government providing health care in some way? Nope. Okay. So <laughs> how do we begin to have a, a conversation about whether or not it's actually capitalist or not capitalist to have health care and actually start to talk about whether or not we want to provide health care to people? That's a good point, Jonathan. It's a bad goddamn time. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how? So there are proposals that are floating around right now on both on both sides of the aisle. Um, and let's start to unpack them so our listeners can understand them. Uh, I guess it's easy to start with the Republican side of things. What are they ultimately saying to the market right now? Well, you know, uh, prior to um, the elect the 2018 elections, we had a Congress and a president who were all about repealing the Affordable Care Act. And then when they got nervous, because with the Affordable Care Act, we'd managed to ensure newly about 20 million people who were at risk of losing it. They talked about repeal and replace um, and they couldn't carry it off. They got close because of their ideology and sticking together, but they couldn't carry it off. And their policies, there's a lot of claim about, especially from the president, about he's going to give us something bigger and better. And it's challenging for Republicans to do that because despite the rhetoric about the Affordable Care Act, it's really a pretty modest law. It's filling gaps in the existing system and, and with incentives to buy, for a, a, to a significant extent, private insurance. It is – Obamacare really was Romneycare. It is essentially a Republican bill. Yeah. Uh, so they've been there and their general strategy, though, they claim the contrary. They like to talk about how they want to protect people who have pre-existing conditions, which is most of us. Um, they, they Their policies um, belie that goal. And it's really dishonest. And what they advocate is more choice, less regulation, which leads to people who need insurance not being able to get it. So effectively, um, when you cut through it all, what they're saying is it's sort of ultra, ultra capitalist, ultra libertarian from the standpoint of if you can afford health care in the private market, you get it, you know, and you get the health care that people offer you and people who have means will choose the best policies. And for those that don't have access or don't have the means, well, you're living in a capitalist country. And, and as you said earlier, given given the cost of health care, it's, it's way up the income scale that people can't afford it if they're, they are uh, denied coverage or charged more because mm. of pre-existing conditions. So, so, Karen, I know you spent a lot of time on this from a policy standpoint. If, if that's the ultra-capitalist or the, you know, the, the hard edge side of things, what, what's – what are some of these proposals that are coming out now on the Democratic side in the, in the primary? I, mean, I hear single payer. I, I hear Medicaid buy-in. There are a lot of different things. We're not going to cover all of this in, in this segment. We're going to have to move through into the next one. But let's just let's level set. What are some of these different alternatives? And then let's unpack them in the, in the last segment. So in three main buckets, there are proposals to just replace all the different kinds of health care that we have with one federal comprehensive program that would be called Medicare for All Universal Medicare. 
there are proposals to make public plan options available to some or all of us instead of whatever other coverage we might have available to us today. And then there's one proposal to not introduce any new public plans, but to just sort of look at some of the shortcomings of the Affordable Care Act, enhance the subsidies so that more people can qualify for them, undo some of the regulatory changes that the Trump administration has engaged in for the past two years that have had the effect of distorting and increasing marketplace premiums um, and making other kinds of uh, improvements. But essentially, to get more people covered, whatever mechanism, there needs to be greater eligibility for coverage. For example, immigrants aren't eligible for anything. People, Poor people in states that haven't expanded Medicaid aren't eligible for anything. Um, and expanding subsidies. The 27 million remaining uninsured still mostly have pretty modest incomes, and whatever coverage we make available to them, they're going to need some help paying for it. They just don't earn enough to pay on their own. It's all very interesting to me, and I find myself thinking about two different things, which uh, we'll turn to right after the break. Is this an ethical conversation or is this an economics conversation? We're here with Judy Fetter and Karen Pollitz, and we'll be right back after the break. Thanks to Auric, an international law firm that focuses on technology, energy, and infrastructure finance. Clients worldwide call on it for forward-looking commercial advice on transactions, litigation, and compliance. Learn more at auric.com. And we're back in this What's Working in Washington discussing health care and help us all understand better as citizens and also as business owners how to make sense of what's going on around us. We're here with Judy Fetter. She is the uh, former dean and currently a professor at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy and Karen Pollitz, who is senior fellow at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Before the break, I lobbed a rather interesting question, but it just struck me. When we talk about health care, are we having an ethical conversation or are we having a conversation about optimizing our economy? Yes. <laughs> well, that was easy. Okay, well, I don't know we're going to talk about the next 10 minutes, but okay, really? It's it's both? Yeah. I, I, when you want to, The ethical issue is whether we believe as a society that everybody should have access to health care, to good health care when they need it. And that without insurance, that is simply not possible. So the fact that we have close to 30 million people without health, health insurance and many others, as Karen described, millions of others, as Karen described, underinsured with uh, big um, out-of-pocket payments in their health insurance, that limits their access to health care. And Americans like to think that everybody gets health care when they need it in this country, but the evidence tells us it's simply not true. In fact, the evidence is you get care. If without insurance, you get care later, you get less care, and for the same conditions, you're more likely to die than people who have health insurance. So it is clearly an ethical issue. On the economic side, because we have such a fragmented health insurance system and a limited government role in much of our health insurance system, our health care costs are, are per capita at least double what the costs are per capita in other industrialized nations. And that cost is borne by all of us um, and is depriving us of the capacity to do other things with those 
resources. So it's most definitely an economic as well as an ethical issue. It also strikes me, Judy, that another hidden aspect of this is it, it forces people to stay in jobs that they don't necessarily like. Yeah, because less, they, less, they, less now because of the, for, the Affordable because Care Act. Affordable Care yeah, Act. But, but, but still true. But still there. But still true. Now that we've got a situation where we, we clearly are going to have a health care conversation and debate in this upcoming presidential cycle, that's very clear that it's it's going to line up that way. I hear a lot on the Democratic side. Can we talk a little bit, uh, Karen and, and Judy, about some of the key proposals and, and how folks can understand them when they read about them in the newspaper of the next 18 months? They're, the Medicare for All proposals say the federal government will just take care of all of this, will enlarge the Medicare program, make it more comprehensive, no more premiums, no more co-pays, no more deductibles. We'll pay for it with taxes, <laughs> but that's it, right? So the whole $3.5 trillion system goes into this new federal program. The federal government now pays about $0.28 cents on the national health care dollar, so the other $0.72 cents are paid by employers and states and families, and they would get a big break on that, although presumably some of that would then get taxed back to pay for this new program. So that's kind of option one. The Medicare for All program would also have a national system for paying doctors and hospitals. So one fee schedule, no more having 10,000 prices for a chest x-ray. We would just know what things cost. Doctors and hospitals would know what they would get paid, possibly more than what Medicare pays now, likely less than what private insurance pays now. Then there are the public plan options. So we'll create this public plan, and some people can have it or not. If you like what you have, you can keep it. And um, uh, and there's a bunch of those. Some mm. are very narrow proposals only for some people in the marketplace where there aren't too many plan choices. Others, including two that will be introduced today, are very broad. Uh, Senator Merkley's bill, for example, would create this new um, Medicare Part E. There's always another rode down the alphabet for Medicare. And um, uh, you know, lots of people could sign up for that. And employers, if they wanted to, could, instead of buying from Blue Cross or Cigna, could buy an insurance policy from Medicare. Or they could keep their self-funded plan and they could essentially rent Medicare's network and Medicare's prices. So employers could get the advantage of the kind of lower, more consistent prices that the public plan offers and continue to fund their program. At the uh, at the other end, there's a proposal to just kind of try to shore up um, the marketplace and expand the subsidies and do things. But there's no kind of inherent cost containment in that because it would still be privately insured to the, for the most part, and we would still have private insurers paying whatever they pay for, so for a, any kind of health So care. in effect, the proposals on the Democratic side of things range from taking the the public-private model we have now is under the Affordable Care Act, shoring up the exchanges to creating more of a of a federal health care plan that people can opt into that's mm -hmm. more of a scaled up. So there's a true public alternative, almost like a country like Britain where you have, you know, public insurance and you have these private plans maybe. And then the other possibility is a full-bore national health service. Judy, is no, you... nobody's going to a national health service. Okay. The national health service is what the, what the UK has, where the docs and hospitals. So that's not are... what the it's that's not what the single no. payer proposal is. No, the okay. single the single payer proposal is a single insurer, but the docs and the hospitals remain private agents. 
So that's different from what is really a socialist system in which the government owns the the. Uh, so providers. effectively becomes like Medicare except for everybody. Yeah, that well, that's huh. a single payer. It's like mm -hmm. Medicare except for everybody. But an important point to note as we discuss this, an awful lot of this conversation is value driven, as you raised earlier, and it, it tends to skip over, although some of the legislation addresses it, that Medicare, although it's extremely valuable to our older population and the people with disabilities who qualify, that Medicare itself has holes. Its coverage is not as generous as the Affordable Care Act is, uh, in, in terms of the scope of benefits. And Medicare also requires significant cost-sharing people buy supplemental insurance to cover Medicare. So it, it, we, we, part of improving the system, when we use Medicare as a label because it's a very popular, hugely popular government program, it needs some, we need to remember that it needs some fixes too. As we look forward, is it possible for our country to have a conversation about health care that's not going to get mired in ideologically uh, driven talking points? You know, how can we get past it's a socialist proposal, it's a uh, not compassionate proposal? How do we get people to actually have these kind of conversations? The history is that every time this has come up in a national debate, that kind of rhetoric has become a key part of the debate. Um, there was just a hearing in the House of Representatives, sort of the first one, and I, I gather there will be more, that actually I thought was pretty civil and pretty enlightened and a lot of kind of good give and, give and take. So, yeah, I think socialized medicine got mentioned once or twice, but there were, you know, there were a lot of questions about, well, who would get care and how much would this cost and how much would taxes go up and what would be the offsetting benefits. There was an amazingly compelling patient who was testifying, who talked about what it means for him. And when we talk about how much do we pay, he said, this is what I have to pay. And this is what it's costing my children and my family, you know, to spend so much on my health care that isn't covered. So I thought there was um, actually a really encouraging discussion about it. Humanize no idea it. where it'll end up, but but an intelligent discussion. So Judy, you teach you teach policy, you know, in a, in a nonpartisan way. How do you get people to think about this policy in a nonpartisan way? Well, I, I do get them to think about the policy. And, and after many years of working with Karen, I pay a lot of attention to pooling risk. Uh, and that's what insurance is about, getting a lot of people. All, most of us are healthy most of the time, uh, getting us to come together uh, and contribute when we're healthy to cover ourselves when we're sick and to be very leery of proposals that claim to promote choice. But in fact, when they promote choice, they undermine the risk pool and segment and separate the healthy from the sick. But I also, Jonathan, teach the politics of policy, and that the even if these are the facts of the about the um, and the evidence about underlying policy, I would argue that health insurance, particularly in the uh, with the Affordable Care Act, um, and and the challenge, the struggle it's been to not only to enact it but to uh, uh, implement and hold on to it, that it has become the symbol. Health insurance has become symbolic of the debate about the role of government in this country and the level of taxes. I think it was an achievement to have a, a, an, a hearing that actually was a quest for information and an effort for, on the part of members of Congress to educate themselves about choices. I have no doubt that the rhetoric is going to be flying um, to demonize proposals that are simply aimed at getting Americans what they need to have. Well, 
if nothing else, I hope that this 25 minutes that we've spent together today uh, on the show will help our listeners have a better understanding of what the true issues are. I've really learned a lot from having you both in the studio. G.D. Fetter, thanks very much for joining us today. And Karen Pollitz, thank you for joining us as well. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. What's Working in Washington Extra. We'll see you next time. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan, online writer Barbara Ulrich, music provided by two D.C. region bands, Two Car Living Room, and The Sunbathers. Tweet us at, at What's Working DC and tell us what you think of the show. Don't forget to like us on iTunes. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for listening. See you next time. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Monday afternoons at 2.30 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.